0: Welcome to this inaugural episode of the renewed Duck of Minerva podcast. Today, I will be talking with Yelena Sobotish about her new book, Yellow Star, Red Star, Holocaust Remembrance After Communism. Uh, Yelena, so you have a new book coming out, uh, Yellow Star, Red Star, correct? That's the title? Yes. I have the order correct. I couldn't remember and I forgot to look it up before the, before the phone call.
1: Yes, yellow star, red star, Holocaust remembrance after communism.
0: All right. Well, so I've had the opportunity to read a sneak preview of the book, uh, uh, about half of it, and I have to say it's it's an absolutely fascinating book. I, I think um, I think the title might might not do it justice. I I remember when I saw the title, thinking about okay, well, this is just something to do with post communism and the Holocaust, but this is really a book about the broader politics of memory. So. I wonder if you might just take us through the argument in brief.
1: Mm -hmm. Sure. So the book argues that uh, a political memory can best be understood um, as a form of state ontological insecurity. Basically, what I'm arguing is that states at times of political crisis or identity crisis turn to political memory which is a formative aspect of their identity. So identity is built on state biographies and state autobiographical narratives, stories that states tell about themselves. And at times of crisis, uh, when that narrative is uh, uh, shaken by external or internal uh, contestation, it really creates a profound sense of insecurity in these states' identities, and they are then trying to compensate for that or try to resolve these identities by basically changing their political memory, changing the way that they narrate their own pasts. And what I argue in the book is then that has a lot of uh, very direct political consequences for the politics of the present. So in the um, empirical cases that I explore, I look at how after the end of communism, uh, Eastern European states have Uh, encountered uh, an already solidified narrative or solidified understanding of the Holocaust in the West. So in the West, this narrative about what the Holocaust was, that it was a distinct event outside from the parameters of World War II, has slowly developed since World War II and is really solidified in a particular understanding of what the Holocaust was, who were its primary victims, who were its primary perpetrators. And that narrative we see in Western scholarship, but for my purposes, much more importantly in Western kind of visual representation of the Holocaust. So in various Holocaust museums and memorials and uh, novels and TV shows and the Schindler List and all of that. So we kind of, in the West, think we understand what the Holocaust was and how it played out and what, how did it visually look, look even. That all has been a different development in the East, mostly because under communism there was no such thing as memory of the Holocaust. Mostly, I mean, I'm, I'm simplifying. I in the book talk a little bit about there's there but different different countries there were different understandings and 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 some differences in uh, the space that communist regimes allowed for Holocaust remembrance. But in general, under communism and under communist ideology, the Holocaust was not understood as a distinct event uh, in, of the 20th century, but it was just something that happened in World War II, and. After the end of communism, as these states now begin to approach uh, the European Union and are interested in becoming European, the process that Maria Malkso has written uh, a lot, and I build on her argument here, they encounter uh, this very strong narrative of the Holocaust, which uh, is providing a sense of insecurity and resentment in the East, mostly because now they have to talk about Jewish suffering, which is not something that under communism they really ever talked about. But more importantly, they have to talk about very deep and extensive local complicity and collaboration. And again, I talk in the book about different levels of complicity, different types of collaboration. Not all countries had the same experience with this. But in any case, there was much more local compl- in this process of approaching the EU and dealing with this different narrative, they um, they try to resolve the, the, the narrative misfit, if you will, by creating a very different narrative of the Holocaust, using the visual um, understanding the symbols of the Holocaust that we all understand, and uh, misdirecting it to talk about how communism was, in fact, just like the Holocaust and communism was much worse than fascism and it was those countries that were victimized by communism in the same ways or in worse ways than the Jews were victimized by the Nazis. And so uh, to wrap up this uh, this overview, my main argument is that they're using, to, to resolve their profound sense of ontological insecurity, they're using the visual and symbolic repertoire of the Holocaust to argue that to argue and retroactively criminalize communism as uh, a totalitarian regime akin to fascism.
0: So the, I mean, you've you've addressed uh, in in your overview the the sources of insecurity, but I, I want to sort of run that down a little bit because it's um, I think something most Americans and maybe even most European Western Europeans wouldn't wouldn't recognize. Right. Um, so the United States, uh, there's no discussion about, uh, the possible, not complicity in the Holocaust, but the fact that, um, um, there are elements of the American foreign policy establishment that had a pretty good idea of what was going on. And mm-hmm. it was not a, you didn't have a discussion in the United States that, that issue isn't really discussed in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the West, in Western Europe, you know, the, the Germans, appear to have taken responsibility for, mm-hmm. for what the Nazis did. Uh, and so I think this idea that taking responsibility or, or confronting complicity driving ontological insecurity isn't, I don't think, is something recognizable. So, so what's going on in these post-communist states? Why is it, do you think, that they're, they're struggling with this idea of complicity in these places?
1: so uh, for sure so before i go there i just want to make sure that the processes of ontological insecurity i think are everywhere so this is not just an eastern european phenomenon i just only focus on eastern europe because i want to talk about the role that communism played in this narrative establishment which is not the case obviously in the west but i don't want people to think that you know i'm only talking about how east european states are, are having problems with complicity. As you indicate. Sure. in the United States, we almost never talk about United States' complicity. I mean, we kind of maybe know a little bit about turning away the St. Louis ship, maybe, mm-hmm. uh, but we very, uh, as, as you just said, uh, very rarely talk about the role of the FDR administration and how much they knew. But this, this is even more egregious in, in the cases of France or Belgium or the Netherlands or Italy, where the narrative over time has solidified into a narrative of resistance. And so now in France, you know, <laughs> everybody was a resistor and very yeah. few people would admit that they, they collaborated with the Vichy regime. In the Netherlands, you know, everybody was hiding Anne Frank in Amsterdam, which is not the case. Most people collaborated or were complicit or didn't do anything. So this is this idea of denying um, your own un- complicity is, is prevalent everywhere. So I just want to make sure that... that We don't leave an impression that I'm kind of leaving the West off the hook. That's a great point. The the, the East. But I'm particularly interested in the East because I'm interested in what communism did to this narrative. So that's why I'm interested in the East. And I'm also interested in the East because the East was the main theater of the Holocaust, if you will. Most people were killed in the East. This is really, this 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 is the landscape of the genocide. So part of my research from my book is to actually go, go to these places and see how they're memorialized today and see what happens when there's no memory or the, when memory is used for very different purpose. So that, that's my research interest in the East is based on those two ideas. All right, so, so to answer your question about what's happening with these countries and why this idea of complicity is so... Um, so destabilizing, um, the main political goal of post-communist countries at the end of communism was to, how they would perceive it, re- re-enter Europe or to go back to Europe. They, they have understood the period of communism as a, as a one long period of oppression, which is certainly true, but also um, a long period of isolation, that they somehow were moved away from history, that history developed everywhere else, but they were frozen in time and frozen in space, and that in 1991, finally, they're free to rejoin the world and rejoin history. And, and, the, and the quickest path to that is joining the European Union. And so there was a lot of effort. Um, and as you know, the EU is staggered and different countries got in at different points in time. But for all of them, the big political goal was to join the EU. The problem, of course, is that the EU, as part of its various regulations and expectations for these countries, set up an expectation of uh, basically uh, a unified political memory. So ask these countries to change their um, very kind of doctrinaire uh, communist textbooks, to change the way that history museums are set up, to really change the way that uh, history is interpreted and and talked about and presented to the population, to really erase the communist um, ideological framework and replace it with a new one. But the problem is, as soon as they started to do that, they realized that they would now have to encounter uh, very, very difficult and very unfavorable um, narratives about You know, what did the Hungarians do uh, during the Holocaust? And how come it was the Hungarian soldiers that rounded up almost all Jews in Hungary and sent them to Auschwitz? How come that in Lithuania, it was the Lithuanian uh, battalions under German orders, for sure, uh, but it was the Lithuanian battalions that shot almost all, 95% of, of the Jewish population of Lithuania? Or in Croatia, they would now have to talk about how Croatia had a completely independent Uh, A Nazi puppet state, which uh, on its own set up uh, a a network of concentration and death camps. This is not something you can uh, deflect on Germany, and so that was a very difficult um, process to go through because these countries, after the end of Soviet Union uh, in the in the more eastern part, or after the end of Yugoslavia in the countries that I'm uh, writing about more directly they had to build their identity on something that came before communism. So they would bypass the communist period where they, their identities were suppressed, and they would build their identity on a on a period that came before. The problem is the period that came before was the period of World War II, and those states uh, <laughs> were not really good role models to set up new political identities on. So how can Croatia create a post-1991 identity as an independent Croatia, where the only other time in its history that it was independent, it had a, it was a fascist state. And so they had to kind of come up with some different framework to justify their claim for independence that did not build on fascism, uh, but also they had to appease a very strong... Uh, global uh, European me- memory framework of the 20th century, and so what I demonstrate in the book is that they they try to meet both these goals by going through the emotions of Holocaust remembrance, by opening Holocaust museums, by uh, instituting Days of Memory, by superficially changing to really show the West what they really wanted to show the West, which is that communism was just as bad as fascism, and that it was those states and those ethnic majorities in those states that were the primary victims of the 20th century. So it's not the Jews, it's the Croatians that were the victims. It's not the Jews, it's the Lithuanians that were the victims. It's not the Jews, it's the Serbs who were the victims. Because the post-communist identity um, that made sense after the end of communism was an identity of of a victim of communist oppression, and that's in my um, uh, in my book how I explain why they put so much effort into uh, doing this memory appropriation.
0: So I want to come back to this issue of victimhood in just a second because it, it's quite prevalent in the narratives of identity in these post communist states, and I think and I find it quite fascinating in part because it's so jarring vis a vis what. Social identity theory tells us in terms of positive distinctiveness, but let's let's bracket that for a second. I want to come back to that. So this this issue of of um, going back to a prior time, I think there's some interesting questions here about you know why they could go back further, right? They could go back before World War II. Do they not exist as states? Are they part of the Ottoman Empire? So that leaves them, or the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So they can't. Um, that's there's no basis for identity yes. there. Um, and so the, so the kind of question I have is why are they then turning to ethnic character? So, so I'm sort of thinking here, you, you have, um, so I'll quote you, quote you from your own book, uh, that States in the East are basing their contemporary legitimacy on a complete rejection of communism and a renewed connection to pro-communist, uh, mythically or, or pre-communist, sorry. Uh, mythically, nationally pure, and above all, ethnic character of states, and that Western European narrative of the Holocaust then threatens to replace the centrality of, eth- of uh, communist and ethnic victimization as the dominant organizing narrative of post-communist states, and is therefore destabilizing to these state identities. And so, um, what I didn't, what I came away with this is why why these ethnic identities? Why not, for example, sort of embracing. Uh, Uh, the sort of new European identity as uh, a force for good in the world or something like that rather than these ethnically-based identities? Mm
1: -hmm. So the main reason for that is that when communism collapsed, a lot of, in a lot of these countries, communism is perceived not just as kind of physical oppression and political oppression, but also oppression of their ethnic identity. The, uh, one of the main ideological cohesive forces under communism was this ideology of multiculturalism and multinationalism or supranationalism, where your loyalty to your, to the socialist subject is paramount and it comes Uh, above and beyond your loyalty to ethnic identity. So in the former Yugoslavia, the case that I know the best, for example, there was an official um, uh, communist ideology called Brotherhood and Unity that actually had its name. And the whole purpose of that, it was to suppress ethnic identities, so that children in schools would not identify themselves as Serbs or Croats or Albanians, but they would all identify as Yugoslavs. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, this existed in the Soviet Union, although it was different. Soviet Union was much bigger. The, the, there was more, I think, diversity uh, across a larger space, and there were, there were also, there was a kind of different level of ethnic nationalism that, that simmered um, in different ways. But... Overall, the the, the cohesive um, political identity of communism was not based on ethnicity. In fact, in some countries, ethnicity was was quite brutally suppressed, and and for example, churches were suppressed as um, expressions of identity. In some countries, uh, minority ethnic languages were suppressed as. Uh, expressions of ethnic identity. And so the idea was that ethnicity doesn't matter, religion doesn't matter, culture doesn't matter. We are creating something new, sure. um, a Soviet man or a Yugoslav man. Sure. And when that collapsed in 1991, um, it created this sense of ethnic freedom that a lot of uh, societies felt was suppressed under communism. And so they felt that finally they can be who they really always were, but were not allowed to be. So they could, again, be Lithuanians, and they could, again, be Poles, or they could, again, be Serbs, or they could, again, be Croats. And that created this um, very strong um, uh, desire to create your state identity based on what was felt as most strongly your ethnic identity. But I also argue in the book that um, partly this is the result of the... um, the way in which both pre-communist but also countries during communism did not really process and embrace ethnic diversity and their own multiculturalism in any meaningful way. So multiculturalism was either ignored or was really not allowed to flourish uh, as, a, as an organic uh, kind of inter-ethnic coexistence. It was either suppressed uh, by denying its existence or it was suppressed by an ideology that called it you know, a, a Communist um, loyalty, but not, did not really reward um, ethnic uh, life uh, on its own. And so this created a, a very strong wish to uh, create your own society the way that you always wanted, which is through, uh, through ethnic majoritarian uh, uh, means. But also, um, a lot of um, anti-communist movements were actually ethnic nationalist movements. So a lot of movements to get rid of communism were uh, on the basis of uh, of nationalism. So, you know, we will get rid of communism because um, it's denying our desire to be who we really are. Mm -hmm. And so it was a very natural transition that those same nationalist movements then uh, took over as political leadership and developed um, these states uh, on a path that was... uh, Path built on nationalism and ethnic majoritarianism.
0: So it strikes me then that there's a there's a tension in the Western European countries between the EU project and uh, the states, nation states. And we see this play out in the ebb and flow of the strength of the EU or perceived strength of the EU. but that that tension then is even more profound between the post communist states who've joined the EU and the EU because they're uh, i imagine it as you're describing it almost as a as a rebound effect so they, there were these national selves that were compressed or repressed under communism and they're springing back into life just as they're trying as they're joining in some cases like Croatia Poland the Baltic states the, this pan-European, almost post-nationalist project. So there's a, there's a real tension there. Yes?
1: <laughs> yes, yes, yes. There's a tension there, but there's also a different understanding of what being European is. And again, here I build on, uh, on Maria Malx's work, who uh, she has written extensively on this. So what being European means in different European spaces. And this idea that European Union was supposed to be this kind of utopia of multiculturalism and it would uh, be a blanket identity that would cover different ethnic identities and create this new European identity, that was never sold (laughs) in East European countries. I mean, they had no interest in that and they always thought that was very naive and never really perceived the EU as, as an entity that would cover their own identities or replace them. It was more becoming European on your own terms. And even, Mm -hmm. for example, if you today listen to Viktor Orban's arguments for why he is staying in the EU, why he uh, has, um, you know, a lot of interest in having uh, his loyalists in the European Party, in the European People's Party, uh, in the European Parliament, the idea that he is bringing is we will make Europe the Hungarian way. So it's not that we will become European and then we will no longer be Hungarian, but we need to change Europe uh, through our own ideas, through our own ideology, and and make Europe work for us. So in some ways, Europe is a signifier of a particular cultural status, uh, um, um, a standard of civilization, if you will. But it it, it doesn't mean adopting um, this utopian idea of EU being a force of reconciliation, a force of... Uh, multicultural, multinational identity that really uh, not very many groups in Europe uh, believe in anymore, in the West or in the East.
0: So I want to come back to this, um, these narratives of victimhood, because I, I found that, as I said, I find that found that quite surprising, given that social identity theory tells us that we join groups for the positive distinctiveness that they give us. So I wonder if you might, if you have any insight on... What's why these victims of narra- uh, these narratives of victimhood are so powerful, and, and in conjunction with that, there seems to be this this um, this lingering power of of traumatic historical events and the relation that they continue to hold sway over ontological security in ways that um, I found uh, if not surprising and intriguing, and I and I see those two as connected. Maybe you don't. But I wonder if, if you have any insights on on why these victim victimhood narratives are so powerful for these identities in the post-communist space.
1: Right. So the, the post-communist national identities were built almost exclusively on identity of victimization, and that is victimization by communists, and in some countries it's victimization by other groups. So Serbian national identity is almost entirely entirely built on an identity of being a victim of oppression of others, mostly Croats through history. And Croatian national identity since 1991 is built almost entirely um, on the identity of being a victim of Serbian aggression. And we can go through countries and and find pairs uh, like those. But at at least in the former Soviet Union, in the Baltic States, in Poland, in Hungary, the new national identity is built uh, quite clearly uh, on the identity of being a victim of communism. so there are different ways to understand why um, the narrative of victimhood is so important for um, for identities. I mean, you have you have uh, uh, talked about one way of looking at it, how identity people join groups to uh, to make them feel better. Um, but there's a different way of understanding identity, and in my book, I build here on uh, Alaya Asman's work on um, on political identity, where she basically says that there are three. Um, uh, when 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 groups think about their history or their role in history, they they kind of group it into three ways. They remember themselves as heroes. They remember some themselves as victims. But really, nobody remembers themselves as villains. Um, and you you kind of you group yourself into you know your your history is heroic or your history is um, is uh, one of a victim. And and this is exactly what we see play out in um, in the way in which. Uh, countries in post-communist europe remember the 20th century and here we get to your your question about trauma i mean the 20th century was traumatic uh in in so many ways um the uh, in, in in i mean everywhere but in in eastern europe the the dual traumas of um, the nazi occupation and then the uh the long period of of the rule of uh, soviet union as as caused such a long shadow. I mean, in Soviet Union itself, we're talking about a very, very long period of time, most of the 20th century, really, under under an an oppressive rule, that it has created a very different uh, understanding of what the role of these societies is in the international system, what relationship they have with the state, what relationship they have among themselves, that it's, it's very hard to break out of an area of victimization. It's everywhere. It saturates uh, the public discourse to a really astonishing degree. It's how people understand who they are. It, they, they, they talk about their own family's history as histories of you know, being a victim by somebody. This is a, a kind of foundational block, a cornerstone that explains your place in the world. And this happens at the individual level, and this happens at the group level, it happens at the state level, and it's really something that um, is further reinforced by, by political decisions, and it's further reinforced by cultural policies, and so in my book, for example, I talk a lot about the role of museums and various historical memory institutions and um, uh, memorial culture and monument culture, which is always almost always a culture of uh, your own victimization, and it, it's It's really difficult to escape that narrative. This is something that people um, really see, uh, it it seeps through uh, most uh, political relationships. And it, it makes sense for most people to think of their country's past as a past of victimization, because it then justifies various other problems that they observe in contemporary society. So, you know, anything from the lack of economic progress that was promised under the EU, uh, issues of unemployment, but also issues of cultural change. Um, I also document in the book the 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 relationship between this sense of past injustice and the sense of um, victimization by ethnic others. Uh, the relationship between that and the current uh, very strong anti refugee and anti-immigrant feeling and the rising Islamophobia. So there's always this idea that we're somehow being victimized by others. But this should not feel very alien to us, you know, in the West, and certainly not very alien to to us in the United States. I mean, you know, this is the entire basis of support for right-wing parties and for, for populist parties and for authoritarian leaders in the West. Uh, that we are observing this idea that you know we were always oppressed by somebody, and now we can finally speak freely, and finally we have leaders who can, who can really you know, let us unleash uh, this this very long held grievance.
0: So um, I want to follow up very quickly on the on the power of suffering because one of the interesting uh, political relationships you or the political dynamics you identify in the book is this pushback. In the post-communist states, against the idea that um, that they should focus on the Holocaust as a particular kind of suffering by the Jews, and you see sort of uh, reassertion or assertion in contrast of their own suffering. So it ties in with this this narrative of victimhood, and I wonder if if this is also a marker of so coming back to this. Uh, distinctiveness that these communities that were repressed by communism and then, you know, in the story that's being told, they were abused by the Nazis, that this is a, a marker of importance or significance that they matter too after not having mattered so long. Is that a, is that a good reading yes. of that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the primary causes of this resentment, um, in the East of the Western narrative is that the Western narrative is of the Holocaust. The Western narrative of the Holocaust talks mostly about the suffering of the Jews and then the suffering, some other victims of Nazism, you know, uh, disabled homosexuals, Roma, and so forth. But the, the resentment that this creates in the East is, is, is exactly what you said, what about us? So we were also, you know, in Poland, we, the Poles, also suffered from Nazism and we were killed by the fascists just as much. So why is it always about the Jews? And then it, it quickly goes from that into kind of, you know, very... Uh, you know shades of anti-semitism you get you get a jump very quickly from quickly from that what about us into why is it always about the Jews and and then you get into very ugly narratives that that still exist about why is it that the Jews have their museums and why does every you know city have to have a Holocaust museum about the Jews but not about you know Polish suffering or not about Serbian suffering they also are very resentful of what they perceive uh, very um, little knowledge in the West about the horrors of communism. In other words, everybody knows about the Holocaust, but nobody knows about the Gulags. Now Mm -hmm. I don't think that that's always quite true. I think a lot of people do know about the Gulags, and in some ways what I try to talk about in the book is how much what we know is also very simplified and how the Western narrative of of communism is also quite simplified in flattening the communist experience across time and space and thinking that everywhere uh, was 1952 and Stalinist terror, which was not the case. Communism had a lot of different manifestations. It it had a different um, level of terror, different apparatus of terror in the early years versus the later ones. It also had a very different uh, apparatus of terror in the Soviet Union versus the satellite states and so on and so forth. But from the perspective of the East, the claim is nobody in the West knows about the gulags, and nobody in the West cares about what it was like to be in the Soviet Union, so you only know about the Jews. And then then the next step is to get into this very kind of anti-Semitic shades of, you know, how come the Jews were so organized to put up their museums, and how come we were not organized to put up our own museums? And this is the kind of thing that can explain the proliferation of these uh, very revisionist museums of history that we see all over Eastern Europe that I talk a lot about in the book, from uh, the Budapest House of Memory, to uh, many museums in the Baltic states that, that that specifically want to make that point that we will now tell you that the horrors of the common of communism were just as bad, if not worse, than horrors of fascism, and we need to tell you this, Western tourists, because you don't know.
0: Sure. Okay. Um, one last question on this: these uh, narratives or or um, a victimhood identity dynamics. Do you? see something um, especially problematic about the victim identity narrative. So I I was struck by the the comparison you made with the emergent right-wing populism in the United States and the victimhood narrative that threads through that. So is this this a narrative that lends itself to a particular kind of politics?
1: I believe so, yes. I think that the focus on your own victimization is – denying you a sense of empathy for others. And the political uh, message of my book, if you will, or the normative uh, message of my book is um, what I um, call uh, memory solidarity. And here I build on on Michael Rothberg. This is not my own term. This is Rothberg's term. Um, But I'm using it to Talk about how, in the focus on your own victimization, you don't have the space in your own political memory or in or in your own sense of who you are for empathy of, of others and for the victimization of others. And I think in general this explains a lot of uh, uh, this deep and uh, unquelling resentment that we see in in a lot of populist movements. This idea that nobody understands that I'm the real victim and in the. the the whole idea that I'm the real victim then denies the opportunity for you to see other victims, including victims of your own behavior at individual level or the state level victim of victim of your own state policies. And so um, I think an, an approach that uh, deconstructs the idea of your own victimization and really opens up your cognitive space for um, empathizing with the memory of, others, the memories that are not your own, is a first step uh, in, in getting us out of this uh, very precarious political moment.
0: But having looked at the, the politics of victimization and, and the Holocaust and post-communism in your case studies, do you, do you have a lot of hope? That the never a renewed of politics Jared. of or a new politics of memory solidarity can emerge in any time no, in the near future? No, no, <laughs> no.
1: I never have any hope, Jared. We've been friends for a while. Um, no, I don't have hope. but It doesn't matter that I don't want it. Uh, I think. I mean, I, I do talk in the book about um, obviously contested. Uh, uh, narratives and and various political contestation that this dogmatic politics of victimization also um, encounters. So in in the countries that I study, I do talk about domestic movements that are trying to destabilize this very strong victimization narrative. And I talk about civil society groups and I talk about individuals and I talk about counter memorials and counter museums. And I do uh, recognize and um, applaud a lot of uh, really kind of courageous efforts to, to shake uh, away from this uh, very dogmatic view of your own uh, national victim self. So I do, um, I don't want those uh, groups and those initiatives to remain um, unnoticed or unappreciated. So I think we need to support them. But I think it's always hard, and again, it's hard at the individual level and it's hard at the societal and, hard, and it's hard at the state level to open up the space, the cognitive space for memory of others. But I, I honestly don't see any other way to get us out of here other than to step from away from our own skin.
0: To change direction a little bit with respect to the book, I was really struck by the importance of physical symbols of memory. And you've mentioned this in the, the desire of, of many of these post-communist societies to establish physical symbols of memory, either be they monuments. Uh, you, so you talk a lot about, uh, uh, particularly in the case study on Serbia, the importance of plaques being placed here or buildings or monuments or uh, so, sort of symbolic, uh, uh, physical symbolic uh, indicators of, of events. And I, I was quite struck by that. It's almost as though the the narratives of victimhood, even though they're, they're ideational, intersubjective, only gain true legitimacy when they find physical manifestation. And I wondered if you had any thoughts on that. If you observe that, because you, you also note, for example, the places where... Um, there's a site in in um, Belgrade where the there were a number of Jews killed, and it's overgrown and and it's neglected. There's a plaque that nobody can read, and, and in fact the the um, the Hebrew is the Hebrew letters are, mm-hmm. have de adhered, and so you mm-hmm. can't even read the the Hebrew inscription. So I. I I wonder if if that struck you when you were doing the scholarship and and if my read on this is is something that resonates with you that they have yeah. to find physical manifestation in yes, order to gain absolutely. some kind of fundamental legitimacy.
1: Yes, I'm 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 very interested in that, and that in many ways was the motivation for the book. Is to, and that's when I said like my, my main interest in the East in the East is in the in the sites of genocide in physical spaces. So my interest as as a research question was also to look at how, what's the physical manifestation of this memory? Because I also think that in IR and in, in ontological security studies, Specifically, we have neglected uh, up to very, until very recently, the physical manifestation of security. Um, not the physical, not the physical security, but a physical manifestation of political uh, memory as an understanding of ontological security. And so I was very interested in bringing that in. And here I build on, on the work by Philip Adus, for example, who was one of the people who started to talk about, you know, the importance of buildings and the importance of landscape for political memory and for a sense of ontological security. Why do certain buildings matter for how states think of themselves? Why does the location of certain memorials matter for how states think of themselves and what gives them... Kind of, you know, think about, you know, for children, a security blanket, like something that they need to have at all times. It gives them a sense of routine, a sense of calm. So think about that in terms of a physical manifestation of political memory. So this is why I hopscotched, you know, uh, all of Eastern Europe. Uh, I went to many countries and, and visited as many sites, small and large, um, and took pictures of all of them to see what is the what is the difference in in very physical uh, visual manifestation of memory. So, so to me, of course, it means a lot to to see a variety of different um, uh, expressions and 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 what does it say to have a memorial uh, where you know, thousands of people were killed, completely uh, forgotten, overgrown with foliage or with, you know, with with the plaque uh, chipped away or, or stolen? What does it say about how important this uh, event was for the foundational block of a state memory? Obviously, it doesn't matter at all. And so then I'm interested, how come it doesn't matter? It seems to me that it should matter a whole lot. And so it doesn't. So then I explore, is it uh, and question of memory indifference? Is it a question of memory denial? Is it a question of memory replacement? Is something else um, replacing that level of memory? Is there a reason why something else is polished and shiny and has visitors and has tourists and what that other thing is? So this was a big part of the investigative work uh, for the book is to figure out how is memory uh physically represented. And I was especially interested in how what we all understand is the visual representation of the Holocaust. You know, we have all seen the Schindler's List. We all think we know what a Holocaust looks like. You know, it had, you know, the the train tracks and the wagons and the abandoned suitcases and the luggage and the shoes. So we all kind of have these visual uh, pointers in our head. And then what I was really interested in seeing is how across post-communist Europe in these new emerging uh, museums, especially, of communism, they're using those same visual uh, tropes, so the abandoned luggage and the, and the wagons and the train tracks, to tell us that this is what communists did, so that you immediately visually get a very visceral reaction, oh, I know what this is, this is just like the Holocaust, so the gulag is just like Auschwitz, and so that that visual equation uh, the, the equation of this visual repertoire was so important that I think it kind of uh, tells the story of this uh, memory appropriation uh, very, very well.
0: Well, the book is, I want to segue to our next point of discussion. I just want to say the book is absolutely fascinating and it's an eminently readable book. And one of the things that I found so um, compelling about the book is reading, in reading the prologue, this is clearly a very personal book for you. I mean, you discovered elements of your own family history that were that were not not well known to you. And so I wondered if you might talk about the process by which you developed the idea of the book.
1: Yeah, so I've been thinking about uh, writing on this for many, many years, many more than I started. And I always had um, certain hesitation, uh, uh, in writing about the Holocaust, uh, for various reasons. Some of it just professional. I'm not a Holocaust scholar. I'm not a historian. I, I come at this as a memory scholar of really of the 1990s. Uh, so I don't have a background in, in, in the history of the Holocaust. So I was a little bit hesitant on that, um, element. I was also hesitant from, um, uh, I guess, a, a, a moral and ethical component. Uh, I was I was worried about appropriating, again, the memory of others, I guess, is the best way to put it. And so I was wondering about um, my own uh, appropriation of the, whole, the Holocaust history and how I would do it justice. And so I kind of struggled with that. Um, and I finally decided to to try and put this on paper, and I've written a couple of articles before uh, I started writing the book to kind of test to see if I if my words really can resonate and if I can tell the story that I wanted to tell um, in a way that's meaningful and and does um, the the period and um, the really the, the the horrors of of the Holocaust justice. And so I also felt that I had to write about the Holocaust at some point. Uh, again, coming. Um, to this as a memory scholar of the 1990s everything pointed back to World War II in, in some ways you don't underst- you cannot understand the 1990s if you don't understand World War II I thought so I, I knew that that would that would take me um, to to this period and then uh, personally I always um, I mean for my first book which was a book about the the Yugoslav wars of the 1990s I I, I felt, uh, a need to write about my own responsibility or lack of uh, uh, involvement or whatever. Like, what, what was I doing when this was going on? I, I feel, as a scholar writing on on traumatic uh, past, that I need to also put my own, um, you know, if I'm writing about complicity and collaboration and bystanding of others, I really need to uh, to talk about my own. And so for this book, I um, I had some vague understanding um, that my grandfather was working for the police um, during the Nazi occupation in Serbia. But I really didn't know much more beyond that. And so as I was writing um, the book, I didn't really think particularly about my grandfather. I was just writing the, the history of the Holocaust in Serbia, and I was doing research about the role of the special police. And then in the course of that research, I was doing archives. Um, I was working on the archives of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. I came across files um, that uh, quite clearly indicated that my grandfather was not tangentially uh, but quite centrally in charge of the first four months of... um, uh, collaborationist government uh, that Serbia instituted after Nazi occupation. And specifically, he was in charge of the uh, special police in Belgrade that included a Jewish uh, section. And the role of the Jewish section was to enforce the wearing of uh, yellow armbands, to uh, register Jews, to take away their property, to enforce anti-Jewish laws. And for those Jews who did not respond um, or did not comply, the role of this unit was to deliver them to the Gestapo. And so what I found were four reports uh, that my grandfather signed, uh, reporting back to the Germans what this unit did. And so it was it was it was very difficult to to read all that. You know it's it's never a good, it's never a good thing when you find out something like that in the archives. And so I debated for, A little bit about what I should do with that information. And it was clear that I had to put in the book. I mean, I cannot put in the book. And so I spent a lot of time figuring out what's the best way and what's the most ethical way uh, to present this. So I I put all that in the preface of the book, kind of positioning my own uh, family and and really trying to tell the story of um, the motivation for the book, which is, as I said, to have uh, empathy for the memory of others, uh, and not a, only the memory of your own victimization, to, to to develop that theme of the book through the theme of my own family, where uh, where the narrative of my own family is one of victimization uh, and our suffering under communism and so forth, and not a memory of of our own role in um, in really the victimization of others. Uh, so that's that was how I decided to to present that.
0: So does. Does most of your work have, is it most of it rooted in this sort of the very personal element is your first book was on the, on the, the Balkan war and you talked about your, your responsibility or not responsibility, but um, your accountability, uh, for Mm -hmm. lack of a better word in that war. Um, And this book, clearly has, uh, personal roots for you as well. So d- do you find that your personal experiences are your most significant wellspring for, for academic or intellectual creativity?
1: Uh, that, I, I don't know. That's, I never thought about it that way, I guess. Um, I, I, I think it's, I think it's more that if I'm writing on something that, does have a personal component, I feel like I have to put it in, that I think I th- feel it's unethical not to. I think the reader needs to know my positionality in here. Um, so I think it's more kind of what I owe to the reader. Um, but largely, I mean, the broader question is whether I am motivated uh, in some ways by various um, acts of violence that I have observed and lived through on the, uh, in, in various countries and various places. Uh, yes, I do think that uh, some of that w- witnessing of violence has uh, been formative for my political um, development, for sure. And that also probably has produced a lot of unanswered questions about uh, conflict and violence and trauma and memory and Really, um, maybe fundamentally, accountability. I think at a core of my research interest is the issue of responsibility and accountability for violence and for trauma, and how we uh, remember our own uh, past and what we do with it, and 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 why do we um, why we're we so reluctant uh, to express accountability for um, for violence. And so I, I think. I think that does play a lot into what my um, my my core research interests are. Yes.
0: So how does this how does this work in your recent work? What does it have to tell us about what's going on in the world today? You mentioned uh, the populist right emergent in the United States. Uh, I You know, having read your book, thinking about the narratives of victimhood, I was really struck by Donald Trump's tweet after he withdrew U.S. special operations forces from a sector in Syria— Apparently, giving green light to Turkey to invade—that the Kurds hadn't helped the United States in World War II, which was just <laughs> such a striking yes. statement. But <laughs> yes,
1: ne- neither me nor you, Jared, were. Yeah, were <laughs> helping I didn't anymore. help in World yes. War II
0: either. Um, yes. But it's it's quite as str- it's also false, as uh, as yeah. folks on Twitter have pointed out. But it's quite as it's it's almost it's a nonsensical statement unless i couldn't i couldn't make heads or tails of it made no sense to me but if you understood if you understand it as part of a narrative of victimhood then it fits quite nicely with the political story donald trump has told uh, throughout certainly throughout his presidency that the united states is taken advantage of that the world is out that so-called friends are really just playing the United States for suckers and the Kurds are no different. And that is a variation on victimhood. So I, I wonder how your work, does it give you, particularly after you finish this book, does it give you a different perspective on what's going on in contemporary events?
1: Well, uh, a lot of the contemporary events were a motivating factor to write the book in the first place. So I, As I grew more horrified with the rise of the global far right um, everywhere, including the United States, it was was very clear to me that that this is all rooted in in an unprocessed, unrealized um, interpretation of the past and in political memory and in the particular stratification of who were the victims and who were the villains and who were the heroes of the past. Uh, everywhere, from the US, to Western Europe to Eastern Europe. Anyways, what's happening now is is a motivating factor for the book. And I was especially, of course, struck by and, and so profoundly disturbed by the rise of neo-fascism across Eastern Europe, by the rise of authoritarianism, by the like off the charts rise in anti-Semitism, uh, everywhere, but especially in Eastern Europe, which is my area of study, that I felt that I needed to say something about that and that I needed to uh, make an argument for why, um, uh, partly for why, my book is not the only explanation for why we have the, the rise in far-right and anti-Semitism. People have taken um, different tacks at this and, and looked at it from a different perspective. Um, uh different aspects my my take is a, a more like a broader view uh, argument for why we're seeing this this rise in these very very pernicious uh, narratives and, and this kind of de delegitimation of fascism where it's becoming somehow more uh w- you know more polite and uh, uh more mainstreamed and uh and I find that movement, uh, very, very dangerous. So, I, my, my answer to that in the book is that we are seeing all of this because the past was never the accountability for the past was never processed, and, and and as we just discussed these identities, these state identities, social identities were built on such a profound sense of victimization that that's the only way which the world makes sense. And so you must have done something wrong to him. Uh, You know, you were, you screwed him over in the past, even if that makes no sense. But this is, this is in his worldview what makes sense. Like you're either an ally or you do everything he wants, or else you are somehow, you know, a historical villain. Um, And, and that, that construction of the other as as somebody who can either be subservient to you or serves no purpose and needs to be eliminated is something that, again, has been the root cause of you know, many horrors of the 20th century, fascism, the, the, the biggest of them all. And I think that this um, diminishing of uh, other viewpoints and this this idea that your own Sense of self and your own national group is uh, superior, and that it's it, it's the only one that deserves self-determination, and that all these others are kind of these menacing others that are somehow trying to dilute your um, your national self and your your purity. That is again not being processed, and that's not being discounted, and that's not being delegitimized. And so uh, we're seeing it come out in different ways. And so what the Jews were. Uh, in the 1930s and the 1940s, we now see the, the refugees and the mostly migrants play that same role. Or in Poland, the LGBTQ population, which in contemporary Polish right is considered the biggest threat to Poland, are gay people. And so I think it's because this idea that others are only there to harm you, that others are never those that can be included in your national story, but are always there to threaten your national story, that idea has not been uh, properly delegitimized, and it has come up, and it's causing this incredible, disturbing turn in global politics. Uh,
0: do you think, um, so coming back to this destigmatization of fascism, do you think, so I'm, I'm uh, for some reason, I'm linking that in my head to um, Donald Trump quite early on in his presidency when the uh, un- United States has a long history of of making uh, moralistic uh, pronouncements or judgments of other states, and, you know, that's incurred accusations of hypocrisy, which, of course, there's always a degree of that in the international system, but... Don- the, it was in the context of Russia, Russia having done something awful like poison somebody in the UK, or I don't remember exact mm-hmm. context, but that Donald Trump said that the United States was ba- basically that the Amer- Americans were no angels themselves. And so there's this sort of, um, do you think that this uh, destigmatization of fascism is, is producing narratives in which um, it's okay to be bad? It's okay. So to sort of say, because what you would sort of say, I, you would expect there to be backlash in the United States, because in, in, at least in some elements of American political culture, the United States is the, is the valiant warrior, right? World War II, the United States mm-hmm. was the good guys, uh, and um, you know we allied with the Soviets, but we later found out the Soviets were bad guys. But the good goodness of the United States, going back to your heroes, victims, and villains, but the, I mean, so this is not particularly the United States, but I think the power of this story is quite significant in the United States. And so it was really striking that Donald Trump said, oh, we're bad, we're bad too, we've done bad things, and, and therefore that justifies us to sort of give everybody a free pass. Are those two connected or are they distinct? The de, de- yeah, stigmatization so of fascism.
1: I think it's, I absolutely I think it's connected. I mean, you know what is fascism? So fascism, like the organizing um, uh, principle of fascism, is violence. So there's no fascism. There's no nonviolent fascism. That's why fascism. Is fascism. There are all these other, maybe like nonviolent, uh, other you know ideologies that that are problematic. But what or but but distinguishes fascism from others is that is the is that violence is its it's its primary organizing mechanism. And so, in if that's your primary organizing mechanism, then then that's really the, it, it's, it, it becomes all about the violence. So violence bi- becomes the, the ruling mo- motivator of your action. And so, of course, then all of these other things can fit under that ideology and all of your political enemies, it doesn't matter their value on their own, or it doesn't matter what valor you attribute to them, they need to be eliminated through violence. So for Donald Trump, it doesn't matter whether we did right or wrong, like the, the kind of the morality of action is irrelevant. The 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 principal logic and a, and a very simple logic is that political enemies need to be eliminated through violence. And so, in that sense, it makes perfect it, it makes perfect sense why he would you know he would talk how you know Kurds <laughs> you know Kurds need to be eliminated because because anything so because they didn't fight in Normandy because they didn't fight in I don't know Galilee I mean it doesn't matter. Um, so I I think I think what we have lost our focus. Uh, 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 our focus is away from looking at uh, fascism through the prism of organized violence and how I think we're complicating the story unnecessarily by trying to find uh, rhyme or logic or reason or some kind of a historical continuity in what fascist leaders want. It doesn't matter. Uh, What they want is violence. And that's why fascism is not something that can be argued with. It's not like, you know, uh, a polite argument we can have on the pages of Quillette magazine or whatever, they, they like to produce their, you know, proto-fascist uh, musings, it is, it is an ideology that leads to violence, that leads to death, and it's something that needs to be defeated and not, not argued over.
0: So I'm going to uh, spring a question on you that wasn't, that I didn't prime you for, but it occurred to me in preparing for this. Is there um, are there folks out there doing really interesting work that inspired you in in your recent in your recent book, or that you just uh, think are worthy of attention?
1: Well, I've mentioned some of them. So, I mean, my my, my work uh, for this book I've mentioned already builds on what Maria Malkso has already written uh, quite a lot about the uh, the idea of becoming European in. Um, in the East, uh, and I owe a lot of the kind of theoretical arguments about, um, what she called mnemonical security, which is kind of ontological security of memory. Um, I, I owe a lot of the theoretical construction to, to her, um, uh, previous work. I build, I've mentioned already on, on Philip Adus's contributions to ontological security as, as, um, Uh, a way of thinking of uh, uh, physical manifestations of ontological security, and uh, I use that a lot in talking about um, the the physical manifestation of political memory in the Holocaust. Um, For this particular book, I have just looked at so much of history. I've looked at a lot of memory studies. Um, I have looked at um, a variety of really you know kind of different work in cultural studies uh, I've looked at people who study for example uh, traumatic mem- memory culture so I've looked at you know things like conflict archaeology uh, which I think in IR we completely ignore uh, you know fields like archaeology for example which i think are very important um, so I've've I've really cast my uh, my net quite widely in in looking at what people from various disciplines uh, and, and very different approaches can, can tell me about, um, about how I understand this moment in time.
0: And I think that is one of the things that makes the book so uh, engaging is that you're drawing on all of these disciplines rather than just playing in the, the sandbox of IR specifically and engaging in the same old uh, theoretical debates. So our, our, to wrap up, What, uh, if you go back in time and to the beginning of your career, what advice would you give yourself about being an academic, how to do your work, whatever?
1: Um, I think, I think an important advice is to, it's easier said than done, but it's to be confident. You know, I, I meet so many students who all tell me that they have imposter syndrome and that's what is blocking them. And I keep saying, everybody has imposter syndrome. I mean, it's just, that's just, that's kind of, it's kind of, it's so, everybody has it, so it's not something that should stop you from doing it. I think having confidence to put your words on paper is, um, and just send it out. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? You get rejected and you send it someplace else. So just put your words on paper. Just, just write all the time. If you have time, write more. If you have less time, you know, You'll 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 find a way. Um, so I think just putting stuff on paper and um, and sending it out is uh, it's it's a super important. It's it's a very hard step for people who are starting. It's very hard to send your first manuscript out, um, as you know. But I, I think you know giving people a sense that everybody struggles with uh, lack of confidence or 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 not being sure that this is a perfect manuscript. N- you know, n- no manuscript is perfect. so so just maybe you know, just sending stuff out and being uh, being confident and also um, following your your true research interests and your um, things that you're passionate about, regardless of uh, this you know question we sometimes tell students, you know, find a gap in the literature well i I think that's a really terrible advice because sometimes, You know, there's a gap for a reason. Maybe it's a really boring topic. Maybe it's a topic that doesn't interest you, and so you don't have much to say about it. Um, So I think finding, um, at least for me, my motivation is not finding a gap in the literature. My motivation is what is going on in the world that I need to explain or that I need to understand better, and then I will understand it better by writing about it. Sometimes I just have no idea what's going on, but I'm curious, and so I'll write about it, and in the process of writing, I'll try to understand it. So really kind of trying to find what are those things that you are so interested in discovering that you have a need to, to write about. Um, and also not being afraid to change your research interests and not having a, not feeling that you have to stick to this one topic over and over and over again, but, you know, move in in ways that your interests uh, take you and you know, you can go back, but you can also move to a different, um, area and, and try to study something completely different. Again, driven by what is it that, you know, when you wake up in the morning, you really want to find out.
0: Well, I think this advice on confidence is, is fantastic advice. And it seems to me that all of your, of your, uh, advice loops into that. And I have to say you are a role model for me in this regard. So, um, thank you from on a personal level, so with that, I think oh, Jed, we are I'm finished. Oh, Jared, I'm not a role model for you, but I appreciate I appreciate the shout out. We are finished with our first uh, Ducca Minerva podcast. So thank you very much, Yelena, thank for you. all Thanks of for your me. all of your really interesting insights and for writing an absolutely fantastic book. And we look forward to reading it when it comes out in with Cornell University Press at the end of this year. Is that right?
1: It comes out. The Kindle version comes out November 15, and the hardcover comes out December 15.
0: Well, I will have a copy for you to sign in Hawaii at ISA next year. All right. Thank you very much, Yelena. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the Duck of Minerva podcast. Many thanks to Yelena for taking the time to speak with me, and thanks to you for listening. If you're interested in more on Yelena's background as a scholar, feel free to tune in to Brent Steele's Hayseed Scholar podcast, where he speaks with Yelena about her education and her personal background. Our music is by Steve Dance. Brilliant beyond all prior human experience and exceeding awesome in all measure. Until next time.